From the studios of Teeing It Up in the Swamps of Jersey, this is Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling for, what are we, Tuesday, June 7th, 2022. And if you are sick of live golf and hearing about anything related to golf, here's a podcast that probably won't touch on golf. Um, a nice break for me and, and for, I hope, the folks out there um, who enjoy this sport for more than the politics that have gotten in uh, behind it. And for that, we welcome Jordan Brickman back to Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. Welcome back. Hey, Jeremy. How you doing? I am well, sir. Um, great to have you. So, um, this Warrior Celtic series, I think it's going seven games. I said that from the start. You've had them in six, I think, officially. Um, uh, 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 sorry, Warriors in, in six, that is. And what was really remarkable, and, and you can't, you know, you, you, you've always said it to me, basketball is a game of runs. And game one, Steph Curry is the hot first quarter, and then basically isn't the same player since, and Boston goes on this incredible defensive um, display to end game one and get that win. Game two comes back. And it's those Warriors third quarters led by Jordan Poole, of all people, even with Clay Thompson struggling and Draymond Green's aggressiveness that get them back in the series and win that game in a blowout. Another game of just absolutely insane, dominant runs. I thought the series would be way tighter. What do you make of these first two? Yeah, well, it's been kind of the uh, the story of the whole playoffs at this point, right? Blowout after blowout. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the first halves of both games have been close, so it's not like there's been blowouts from, from the beginning of the game. Um, but, you know, back and forth, just like we expected. Uh, even within the games, they've been back and forth. But this is this is what the Warriors do, right? They they can, it doesn't matter if they're down 20 or, or, or no matter what's going on in the game, a guy like Steph Curry, he's kind of, well, it can be kind of blowout proof at times in, in, the, in the postseason. We saw it in the NCAA tournament when he was at Davidson. If they need it, if they need some buckets, the guy's just going to go shoot a bunch of threes. Odds are a high percentage are going to go in. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of takeaways, a lot of things that are unsustainable um, for from the two games. So, so it'll be interesting to see how, how things unfold. But you know, you, you mentioned Clay Thompson. The Warriors are going to need someone consistently that's not Steph Curry to score. It was Jordan Poole in Game Two. Um, that, 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 that made a big impact for them. But other than Steph Curry, they're going to need offense. And if it's not coming from Clay, it's a lot of pressure on Jordan Poole, who's been pretty poor defensively so far uh, in this series. There's a lot of pressure on him. And then from the Celtics side, you know, Horford was atrocious in Game 2, but was amazing in Game 1. Marcus Smart was ineffective in Game 2 offensively. You know, they, there's, there's a, a couple switches made from a strategic standpoint. Mark Jackson called it out during the broadcast. You know, traditionally the Warriors like to run Steph off a lot of screens and, and have Draymond bring the ball off the floor, which allows for Draymond to be, uh, to, to force uh, defenses to guard him and to respect him because he has the ball in his hands. Uh, and they'd run Steph off a lot of curls and try to get him the ball, but they've switched it and now Steph is the one bringing the ball off the floor. It allows them to get the switch from Marcus Smart to Al Horford or to Robert Williams or to whoever else they want to guard him and that really opens things up, allows for Steph to create and allows to make things easier for, for other players. So that was the big switch in game two. We'll see what happens the next game. I'm curious to see if we see a lineup from the Celtics where there's no Horford and no Robert Williams out there, and they just go five 
wide, switchable perimeter players, so it's not an easy matchup for Steph. Um, but it'll be interesting to see the, the chess match that happens as, as the series unfolds. When you look at all the pick and rolls that that the Warriors ran in Game Two, all the just and and to kind of just totally change the way that their spacing works from what they've done through this entire dynasty. Is this sustainable over a seven-game series, or is this something that a good coach and a good team, especially when when that team, the Celtics, has the guy who is the reigning defensive player of the year, that they'll sniff out and you've got to change it up again? Yeah, well, I think it's, it's kind of what I just hinted at a little bit. The Celtics can run a lineup out there of Smart, Derek White, Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, and Grant Williams. All five of those guys are plus defensive defenders, switchable players, and if Draymond Green is playing the center, there's no concern about, you know, one of them getting posted up or really getting killed on the glass with the Warriors lineup. So I think the counter to, to what the, the Warriors did is to go with a lineup like that. And, and I don't think we've seen that lineup yet in the postseason because most teams they play, you know, have a big man. They, they think about Bam Adebayo, you think about Giannis Antetokounmpo. They have, they have to have size out there to guard those guys. They don't have to do that against the Warriors. So I think that's the next chess piece to, to move. If they don't make that change, I think what they're doing is sustainable. But it'll be interesting to see how the Warriors counteract the, 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 the Celtics potentially going small. You know, Kevon Looney's been really good. But as soon as you bring Looney in, it allows for um, it allows for the Celtics to bring back their bigs. And their bigs are better than Kevon Looney, even though Looney's been pretty strong so far. So um, I think that's, that's kind of the, 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 the matchups that we're going to see happen and maybe the Celtics say you can play Cavalloni if you want good luck guarding us defensively uh, with our five five wide offense and our switchable defense so I'm expecting to see a lot of that next game. Jordan Brickman with us here on Teeing It Up. When, when you look at what the Celtics did in game one and how wide open those shot attempts were especially for Al Horford I mean geez you and I could have made those shots maybe not me I think you with some of the space the Warriors were giving them, and then and then the, the defensive intensity and the role that Draymond played and the role that a uh, Gary Payton Jr. played in Game Two is that just effort? Is that just is that is that effort? Is that is that somehow on uh, uh, um, somehow? Jeez. Somehow, Andre Iguodala's minutes being misapportioned by Steve Kerr. How do you go from a defensive effort that was lackluster in Game One to sensational in Game Two? Yeah, well, I, I think it's hard to say effort. Right? The NBA Finals. If you have an effort problem in the NBA Finals, then you shouldn't be playing professional basketball at that point. I think it's probably more miscommunication, defensive scheming um, issues. Um, I think there was a point, though, in Game 1 where the Warriors, uh, there was a play, I think, with six or seven minutes left in the fourth quarter with the Celtics hit a three, and the Warriors kind of slumped their shoulders and hung their head. I think it gets to a point when the, when the run won't stop that you're kind of praying for a miss, and then once they start going in, you know, you can, the, the, energy, can, the energy can be zapped just because they kind of sucked it out of you, so I think there may have been some of that. Also, the, the, the team was different in Game 2. They Gary Payne back, they Donald Porter Jr. back, they Guadalla didn't play. Iggy didn't play the entire Mavs series. So for him to come back, you know, the players are just not in rhythm with him, and he's not in rhythm with the players. So um, obviously Payton has been out as well, but Payton's been part of the rotation for most of the year. Iggy's been kind of in and out from performance reasons because he's just old and hasn't playing that much from a health standpoint. Um, 
but 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 you add guys like Payton and Otto Porter, they're just switchable, versatile defenders that that are just are just stronger players. But look, the Celtics still shot. The actually they both teams shot fifteen for thirty-seven from three. Um, in game two, they equally, which is over 40%. So Celtics still shot a good percentage from three in the game. Now, a lot of that is Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And obviously, the Celtics need their stars to be stars to win the series. Um, but those role players, Horford, Smart, Grant Williams, when those guys are getting hot, that's, that's the, that's the swing players, right? When those guys play well, that's when the series goes in the Celtics' favor and vice versa for the Warriors and Cool or Clay Thompson or, uh, whoever else off the bench is, is playing well. Those are the swing players. Um, so that's when you really see see it's, it's shift in Celtics' favors when Horford and Smart and, and Williams are, are getting hot because they're not a very deep team. You know, they got Pritchard on the bench too. They got about seven players maybe that they're going to play consistently. So they need those guys to shoot well. If they don't, you know, they, they can focus in more on Tatum and Brown. Brown was great to start the game, but he, he faded. He, he's not a guy generally who can carry at a high level in the postseason and carry the offensive load for four straight quarters like a Tatum or a Curry can. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see um, how, how that continues to evolve, but those role players are always huge in, in these postseason games. I remember uh, one, one anecdote, Mike Miller uh, for, the heat, for the Heat years ago, and, and uh, I forget what, who, who they were playing against, but he, he went like five for five or six for six from three in one of the games. And when you get a boost like that, from, your, from a player that's not your star, it just makes everything easier. You're not expecting to get 18 points uh, from an Al Horford or something like that. You're expecting to get you know 10 to 12 points from someone like that. So if they add that additional six to eight points, it's a big difference in these games. Um, and look at you know keeping with the Heat. Look at what Duncan Robinson did for them. Yeah. Uh, you yeah. Know, or, or or look at look at Gabe Vincent. You know um, he was yeah. terrible in Game Five and Game Six. Got hot, in game, or maybe it was game four and game five, I forget exactly, but got, he missed like 18 straight threes or something. Then he got really hot in, in, in game seven, and it gave him, gave him a chance, but he was so bad in those previous games. They could have won some of those games if, if he if he had hit his normal average. But when these guys go cold, they, they rely on these players. You know, I even think back to just to bring it to the Knicks, when the Knicks had Steve Novak uh, in 2012, 2013. When Novak was hitting his three pointers, he was, the whole offense was much smoother. When he was hitting his three point, Every, everything seemed open. They just really free flowed. And when they played the Heat that year, or in the Pacers, excuse me, they, they shut them down. Um, he couldn't get open threes, and it just made the offense stagnant. Those role players, it's really important that they play well. Um, I'm going to ask possibly the silliest question I've asked on, on teeing it up in the 15 year history of this show. But I'm asking it for a reason because I don't think Lisa Salters would have pointed it out if it wasn't significant. Iggy was out for game two, yet gives them a speech when they're down in, I believe, either the first quarter or very early second quarter that says, you look like a team that, that that's uh, down 15, you're down five, come on now, get your act together. How much can a single motivational speech change the way that players are playing on the floor? Uh, you know, I think sometimes when someone points out something obvious, it can open your eyes. Uh, that goes for anything. It doesn't have to be a, a, a sport. It could just be, um, you know, business advice or just, you know, worldly advice. Yeah. Someone, sometimes someone could point something out to you that you just don't realize is the truth, and that, and that can open your eyes. You know, there's also that clip of Marcus Smart from Game 1 saying to the, the, his teammates, 
Uh, you know, we're not playing the Heat anymore. You got to step up on all the on all when on the perimeter. Yeah, because everyone on the Warriors can, can can shoot. You know, or at least most of them can shoot. From it was three. a great mic up moment. Like a, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you know, and uh, everyone knows that, right? The, the Celtics know that the Warriors are better shooters than than the Heat. Everyone knows Steph Curry can pull up basically past the half court line and Clay and pull head. But just you know, hey, we're not playing the Heat anymore. Let's re- let's remember that. Um, Something just obvious like that, it could just kind of bring you back in, like, oh yeah, I gotta do this thing. Um, so, you know, hearing from a guy like Iguodala, who obviously people, um, you know, really respect on the team. You know, even myself, I, w- I was just playing pickup yesterday, and there's a player that I was playing with. He actually, he's an older guy, probably like in his early 40s. Uh, he used to play at Georgetown, and uh, I was being very passive, and he was like, hey, look for your shot, and that just gave me confidence to shoot the ball next time I had the ball. Um, so, you know, it's obviously I know to look for my shot, but just to hear it from someone that I respect helps me have a little more confidence. So I think that's kind of the, the obvious advice, but sometimes the obvious advice is the smart advice. Jordan Brooklyn with us here on Teeing It Up. Um, Peyton Pritchard. Um, I, I just, I look at what he and Derek White have done for the Celtics team. So it, it's a way different change of pace from what Marcus Smart brings as a point guard, in quotes, from them. For the Celtics team, is it going to be a role player? Is it going to be them? Is it going to be Grant Williams? Is it going to be some kind of perimeter shooting? Or is this going to be a Tatum-Brown-Smart series for them when it's all said and done? I think the difference in the series from the Celtics standpoint is, is the Warriors have the best player in staff. But the Celtics have like two to six best player, like the yeah. next probably four or five best players in the series. So I think it's it's, it's kind of a, a combination of it's not going to be just Tatum and or Brown. You're good. Like game one, Horford was on fire. Um, he's finally got on fire again in the series. Um, and maybe it's not Horford, then it's Smart or it's Williams. Like Grant Williams in game seven against the Bucks was amazing. Um, they just have enough pieces that it, the, the, the role players will play a bigger impact, I think, than the Warriors role players will. Um, because the Warriors role players are kind of everyone other than Steph. You know what you're going to get from Steph every night. You don't know what you're going to get from everyone else on the team. So you can kind of jumble in everyone that's not Steph as a role player on the Warriors. Um, and on the Celtics, everyone that's not Tatum or, or Brown, in my opinion, you can call a role player. So I think it's just going to be every, every night someone different or a couple of different people for the Celtics. But the Warriors, it's a little more of a crapshoot. We don't know what, what some of these guys are going to look like on a regular basis. You would like to think that Clay will be consistent, but he just he's just been bad, really bad for two games. So we'll see how he how he evolves as the season as the series goes on. But for the Celtics, I think it's more of a team effort um, every night. You know, I think you're going to expect these role players, especially excuse me, especially on the home games that are coming up, to score in the double digits, and that should be a big boost for them. One guy we haven't talked about is Wiggins, and his uh, development. He hit two threes in game two. He's had that outside shot start to uh, develop for him. What's been your observation from these first two, and then how do you see this going from here? Yeah, you know, I thought Wiggins played really well in game two. Particularly, there was, I think there was two offensive rebounds that he got uh, in the game, and it was just a rebound that he came out of nowhere, came skying in and got the offensive rebound, created a second possession for them. And he's really, really, and everyone's talked about this, but he's really embraced the little things. 
the hustle plays, and there was even a play where he was. Uh, I forget he was in, he was in a tussle with, but he was kind of yeah. shoving with one of the Celtics players and showed some physicality and some toughness. And the Warriors need that on the team because Draymond obviously is going to bring that. Uh, Iguodala historically brings that, but who knows if he's going to even be playing or get minutes moving forward. You know, Peyton brings some toughness. Clay historically brings some kind of like quiet toughness. But Wiggins, you know, being able to like shove some people around and, and throw his weight around a little bit, they, they need that. Um, I really liked what I've seen from him. He's really embraced his role. And look, if they offense gets a little stagnant and Steph's not in or pools a little cold, he can get a bucket. He can get a bucket for you. So I'm anticipating seeing a big game from him at some point in the series, a 20-plus point game from him when maybe he wins a game for, for the Warriors. I, I think that's going to happen, and that'll be kind of his the, the, the cherry on top for his all-star starter season, uh, if you want to, which is what happened, but you know, not really that level season he's had, but that, that's what actually happened. He was an all-star starter, so um, I think that we're going to see at least one, maybe two games of him putting up 20-plus points and making an impact, but it's his defense and it's his hustle, getting those offensive rebounds, you know, getting the... I thought the Warriors seemed to get every 50-50 ball, uh, at least in the second half, in the, in game two, and that's the kind of stuff that a guy like Wiggins will help, help get done, so um, I've liked what I've seen from him so far. Any other thoughts about this series slash your now prediction, knowing that it's 1-1 going back to Boston for this series? Uh, I'll tell you what, at halftime of Game 2, um, it just seemed, the first half of Game 2, it just seemed like everything the Celtics got was easy and everything the Warriors got was hard. And I was like, it just doesn't feel sustainable for them to move it. And, but then they were still, you know, still like a two-point game at halftime, so I was like, it's hard. It's hard versus easy, but they're keeping it close. But they're at home. It doesn't feel sustainable for them to win a series playing at this pace. And then the third quarter happens, and it's like, oh, okay, they can still really mess this team up over periods of time, and can really create mismatches and be a problem. I, I would say I'm less confident in my prediction after two games. The Celtics just feel just deeper and more talented and have more options than the Warriors do. If Steph Curry has a bad game, it's going to be really hard for the Warriors to win. Now, Steph could have seven games and be good or great in all those games. But if he has a game where he's off, it's a lot of pressure on Jordan Poole or Clay or Wiggins to, to carry the load. And those guys, they're not really that type of player at, at this level. So and I think I'm nervous. Go ahead. And then, no, no uh, uh, sorry to interrupt. I think Steph's going to have to go 48 at some point as well. Uh, Tatum as yeah. well. Yeah, uh, probably game six or seven should we get there. That, that could def- I mean, look, Steph doesn't, by the way, Steph was great defensively, I thought, in game two. Yes, uh, he was. His effort he, was he up. He played very well. Yes. Uh, Whole team's effort was smart. just way, way, way more like you would expect from a Warrior team that had all that time to prepare. Yeah, um, so, you know, Steph, Steph carries a bit, you know, when Steph is off the ball, he he's not carrying as much of a load as he does when he's on the ball. Off the ball, he's happy, you know, Steph's in amazing shape, right? He's got incredible cardio. He's always moving around. He's always running. But it's a little bit easier to jog around than it is to have the ball in your hand doing crossover moves and trying to play me. So I think it's, the load is heavier for him when he's on the ball, which is what he was in game two. But with that said, he's not LeBron James where he's banging in the paint every play. He's still pulling up three or, or you know, doing mid-range. mid-range or he can get to the paint, obviously, too, but less so than 
some other guys who have played 48 minutes in the past. So it's a lot of pressure on Steph this, this year, this entire series, to be great. And basically every game he has to be great. Very little wiggle room for him to, to not be great. So I'm going to stick with the Warriors. You know, one of the reasons why I chose the Warriors was for composure reasons. Um, you know, the, the mismatch, Kevin O'Connor and Chris Vernon were doing a breakdown of the best players on championship teams, so basically ever. Um, and the best player when they win their first championship is almost always 27 or 28. Giannis, I think, was 26 last year, so he's an exception to the rule. Tatum and Brown are 24. These guys mm. are really young for this stage. Mm. Um, like M- MJ won at 28, I think. I think LeBron was 27. KD was 28. Um, you know, and, you know, Kobe didn't, Kobe's first championship, he was under that age, but Shaq was the best player on those teams. So it's very rare for players their age to win championships as the best player on their team. And I think that is just going to catch up them at some point. And you gotta, you gotta bet on the Warriors championship DNA. You know, experience matters in the NBA playoffs. So I'm still going to bet on that when push comes to shove. Obviously, you can point at game one and say, well, the Warriors did that great composure there and the Celtics stepped up on the road in game one of the finals. But uh, I'm still going to bet on the Warriors championship DNA to, to pull off the series. But I'm a little less confident today than I was at the start of the series. It's going to be fascinating to see how it shakes out. Which, which brings us to the fact that your Mets split with the Dodgers. <laughs> I mean, I'm just laughing saying it. Like, it's, it's, it's crazy. You're eight and two. You have a three game winning streak. You beat the Padres last night. You're still nine games up. You don't have Max Scherzer since we last talked. This is insane. And you're winning in remarkable ways from people who were not on the opening day roster and pitchers who were not thought of as key P. I mean, this is just mind blowing. Yeah, it's, uh, it's special. It's been special. Um, you know, I try not to get ahead of myself with this kind of stuff because we've seen great months before. This is, this is, you know, the stretch, the, the two, almost two and a half months now, start to the season is fairly unheard of for the Mets. Um, you know, they've had great teams before. I think this team to this point is the best team I've watched in my Fandom as the Mets, which started kind of like 02, 03, post, so post 2000 World Series run, is where I really became a huge fan and watched basically every game. So I think this is the most well-rounded team I've seen, and just, just the kind of the most special team, if you will, from the random plays and the random players making making big making big plays and winning games. Um, but <clears throat> excuse me, but all it comes down to is are they healthy at the end of the season? Doesn't matter what you do in April. Doesn't matter what you do in May or June or. Uh, the rest of the months, you know, it just matters how do you look come come playoff time. Is DeGrom there and is DeGrom himself? Is Scherzer there and is Scherzer himself? How does the bullpen look? You know, like that 06 Mets team, which is probably the best Mets team I've watched previous to this year. <coughs> Excuse me. They have, by the end of the season, they have lost Wayne Sanchez, their setup man, to a car accident. They have lost Pedro. They have lost El Duque in the rotation. By the way, those guys are like 40 years old at the time. Um, so I've seen it before, and the Mets have seen weird things happen where players get hurt, players are not there. It's been super fun. They certainly seem like a legitimate title contender. Let's let's keep them healthy for the end of the season. That we're gonna, if, if nothing else, it's clear we're gonna be there. 
well, what, what do we look like when we're there? And, that, and that's what I'm, that's what I'm, I'm focused on. Let's stay healthy. No, no, no season ending injuries. It's okay to miss a month, month and a half because something's going wrong. Let, let's be healthy. Let's be full strength and playoff time. Jordan attended his first ever NHL game since he was last on the pod. Jordan. Mm-hmm. The experience of the Garden for the Rangers was what Game Six during the Hurricanes. Uh, that's right. Yep. Game yeah. Six, uh, elimination game. Yeah. Uh, what was that like? It was a lot of fun. I mean, look, they went up. They won the game five two. They went up two nothing in the first period. Um, so it kind of eliminated some of. And they were three nothing at one point. It kind of eliminated some of the tension of a hockey game that uh, that I've heard about and that I that I understand exists. Um, you know, it's kind of a lapper, if you will. Um, obviously, if I was a Rangers fan, I'm sure I would have seen them blow leads like that all season long and blah, 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 that everyone has, you know, and have a little bit more experience watching the team play. Everyone thinks their team's going to blow every lead. Um, but it was it was super fun. I mean, it's kind of a combination. I'll describe it as, obviously, I've been to a lot of Knicks games and I've been to a good amount of MMA events at this point. It's kind of, the crowd is kind of a combination of, NBA and MMA combined, kind of a hybrid, because they're bloodthirsty like an MMA crowd is, where it's like they want to fight and like they're like they're out for blood, um, and then they got like the the, the heart of New Yorkness of a, of a Knicks crowd. So um, it was it was great. It, it it made me sad that Knicks are not doing this and are maybe <laughs> who knows when they're gonna do it. Yeah, um, and be gonna go on a playoff run and have the city alive. Um, so it made me feel a little sad about that, but super fun to be there. It's nice to, to go to you know MSG is like my home arena and and see a team win and the fans get behind them. Um, so so it was a fun time, and I've definitely walked away with a little bit more of an appreciation for, for hockey. And I've been watching a little bit more uh, even after I was there. Some of some of the games, keep an eye on them and can appreciate um, the sport a little bit more. A lot of people will be happy to hear that most recent sentence you just said. Um, in your response finally Jordan Brickman we, we keep doing this where it syncs up perfectly UFC 275 is this Saturday night if I'm not mistaken yep. <laughs> so I'll just say the same thing I did last pod he, he, he educates me on storylines so that I know if I do see something what I'm seeing it's in every one of my feeds so clearly, this stuff has infiltrated my social media. What are we looking for on Saturday night? Yeah, so first of all, they're fighting in Singapore. Um, so it's going to be early in the morning there, very early in the morning there in Singapore for, for those guys. That's an interesting move. Haven't they done daytime fights in Dubai? Yes, well, it's, it's kind of... I'm surprised they're doing it at normal time for America. Uh, yeah. They've done... They've done They've done this before in Dubai, and it was normal time in America. And like these guys are fighting at eight a.m. the local time. Imagine starting your day with a fight, and then you got arrested. You the rest of your day to go through still. Like yeah. at noon, you're eating lunch after you had a fight three hours ago. Um, so um, it's gonna be super early for them there. But there's three. It's a very top-heavy card. They have a lot of local Singapore um, fighters in the card. I've never heard of on like the undercard. But there's three. There's three big fights on the card that should all be all be very fun. I'll start from uh, I'll start from the in order which with, with which they will air. Um, they got um, Weili Zhang, who is the former um, uh, women's champion, who who is fighting against Joanna Young Jacek, who is also the form, former women's uh, bantamweight champion. 
and it's a rematch. They fought, uh, I think it was January, or, I think it was February 2020, uh, so right before the pandemic, and it was a five-round fight for the women's bantamweight title, and it was hands down the best women's combat sports fight of all time. I think it still holds up, even if you're familiar with the uh, Amanda Serrano, Katie Taylor fight that happened a month or two ago at MSG, which was a great fight and one of the best women's boxing matches of all time. The way of the Zhang, Yolanda Young, Jacek fight is better than that fight. Uh, Yolanda Young, Jacek famously has a huge hematoma on her forehead after the fight. She literally looks like an alien um, after the fight. And it was just a brawl for five minutes. So they're having a rematch. Yolanda Young, Jacek has not fought since that fight, so she's been off for about two and a half years now, but she was one of the best bantamweights of all time. Wei Zhang since then has fought Rose Nami Yunus uh, twice, losing twice, including once by a spectacular knockout via via head kick, um, and she's now on a two-fight losing streak. Uh, she is Chinese, so she is going to be fighting. She's going to have the home crowd behind her in Singapore, um, and it's, it's going to be a great fight. Three rounds versus five rounds, so you can expect the pace to be very high, um, and, you know, they're going to come out for blood after that last fight being such a brawl and very high intensity. Um, and yolanda has been off for two and, a half, two and a half years, basically, at this point. So everyone's looking to see what she looks like. Has she improved um, or has to have her skills eroded over time? Will she have ring rust? So that should be a great a great fight. Um, after that, you have Valentina Shevchenko versus Talia Santos. If you're not familiar with Valentina Shevchenko, she may be the most badass woman on the planet. Um she has been a, basically a minus 1,000 favorite or higher in her last, I think, five or six fights against everyone she's fought. And well, she's looked the part. She's looked the part in all of those fights. She's basically been, she lost a round uh, two or three fights ago, and everyone was like, is she falling off? Um, so she's <laughs> fighting Talia Santos, expecting this. I think, I think Santos, I think uh, Sochenko's like minus 600 in this fight, so it's a little closer than some of her other ones, but you can expect her to, to, to roll like she always does. Um, she, she, she dominates uh, a lot of the women in her class. Could expect her to move up away class should she win this fight potentially. And then the main event is basically guaranteed fun. Uh, you got the light, it's the light heavyweight championship. Glover Teixeira, who is 42 years old and just won the title in his last fight for the first time in his career. He's a guy that's been up and down throughout his entire career. He fought John Jones years ago during John Jones's run. John Jones beat the piss out of him. Um, and he built himself back up and he made it back to the title contention and he, then he won the belt for the first time at 42 years old, which is a tremendous story. And he's fighting Yuri Prohaska, uh, in his third UFC fight. He's had two UFC fights, um, so far and he's won them both by vicious, vicious KO. Not TKO, but KO. Left these guys unconscious in both of his fights. He's all offense, no defense, incredible pace. Uh, this fight, the over-under, it's a five-round fight. The over-under is one and a half. So you can you can see what Vegas is thinking, that they think it's going to be quick rock and sock and robots. Um, the, the challenger here for Oscar is a minus 200 favorite in the fight, which is which is interesting. But I think Glover Teixeira is good value here. Uh, I think he's like plus 170. If you can get the fight to the ground, I think you could see him submit Yuri. And Yuri, again, does not have a lot of defense, so he can also get caught by one big punch by Glover, who's got a lot of power. But uh, I love Yuri Prohaska. He's super fun. That main event should be a lot of fun. He's also got a crazy hairstyle. If you want to look him up, Yuri spelled J-I-R-I. He's got a crazy ponytail that goes straight into the air. Uh, so he's a lot of fun to watch fight, and I, and I look forward to, to that fight as well. Sounds like 
there's in every single one of these it it, it, it sounds and and I I give you a lot of credit for 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 bringing this up you build up the history you you build up the what have they done and it's been able to work I I, I don't know if that makes sense but it's it's you've been able to um, you've basically had people and fighters who have been able to consistently create a brand for themselves essentially through how they've won their fights the tactics the strategy and it's it's very similar to the fact that Kyle Lowry is going to take a lot of charges or Draymond's going to be you know end up on the floor it's you get to know them on a different level I guess is what I'm trying to say does that make any sense yeah I think the UFC is all about storytelling you know it's kind of the best combination of I think a lot of people that are UFC fans or MMA fans are former WWE fans or current WWE fans and it's kind of married the WWE storytelling narrative of like bad guy versus good guy you know heel versus face type of thing um, with actual sport um, and actual technique and actual uh, blood, sweat, tears that are, not, that, are, that are done out there. So um, I think, you know, a lot of us, I was a huge WWF fan growing up and then WWE for a little bit. Uh, not so much anymore, but I always appreciated those storylines. Uh, and now it, I can marry that to, to real, actual, essentially fights to the death um, on every Saturday night. So it's, it, it's great. Crazy. Jordan Brickman, thank you, as always, for coming on Teeing It Up. I greatly appreciate it. Comprehensive look at multiple things and multiple sports. Thanks for having me on, Jeremy. You, you got it. And thank you all for listening to this edition of Teeing It Up with Jeremy Schilling. We'll see you next time.